Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm very excited to have uh, John Sampson back on the program. I didn't get enough of him last time he was on, and I'm very excited that we're going to have the whole hour together. He said theology simply means the study of God, and he does a lot of studying when it comes to his faith and his uh, um, talking about God's sovereignty and election, which is a fascinating subject. And I know it's uh, going to stir a lot of people, uh, which is going to be wonderful because we've got traditions that we've hung on to and things that we've, uh, we need to dust off and make sure that we understand what Scripture teaches. So you're going to enjoy this hour a great deal. And uh, John is a uh, pastor teacher of King's Church in Peoria, Arizona, and also an author and conference speaker. He just, uh, he just has a, a love for Jesus, and you're going to love this time together. I know you're going to have questions, and the only way we can take the questions today is via text, and that number is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Let me take 60 seconds, and then I'll bring on Pastor John Sampson. If you dream of becoming a published author, take the next step to make your dream a reality. Meet one-on-one with a publisher, literary agent, or published author to get valuable feedback and advice about your writing at the 2020 Northwestern Christian Writers Conference, July 24th and 25th. Tickets are on sale now, and for the month of January, get 20% off the full ticket price. Find out more and register online today at NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. When we come together across the lines that divide us, dreams come true. I have a dream today. As you listen to Faith Radio, we hope you find help to live out your faith in a meaningful, consistent way. And that means moving towards unity, engaging culture at a personal level. So will you join us, letting our light shine, demonstrating God's love, connecting faith to life, Faith Radio. Welcome to the show. I don't wish you a long commute, but if you have one hour in the car, this is going to fly by because uh, Pastor John Sampson is my guest. He's, again, a teacher, pastor of King's Church in Peoria, Arizona, and he's written a book called 12 Whatabouts, and I just love that title because people ask regarding the sovereignty of election, well, what about this and what about that? And after he heard that a million times on his blog, he decided he put it all together in, a, in his book called 12 Whatabouts, which is what we're going to be chatting about today. John, welcome back to the show. It's great to be with you again. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. You know, and I've been, one of my goals this year is to memorize the book of Ephesians so you can only guess where I'm at in chapter one going through what I'm (laughs) learning. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us and the one he loves. 
This is for his pleasure and will, isn't it? It really is. And what is amazing to me is because this doctrine is controversial, we need to kind of set the parameters and Let's say this is an in-house, in-house discussion. Okay. To, you know, a lot of folks think if you don't have the exact same view I do on this, you can't be in the kingdom, and mm-hmm. such is not the case. And some of the, a lot of the, the, the complexity is taken out when we realize the greats in church history, a lot of them are lined up on this side of accepting the sovereignty of God. And we should at least pause to think, why would they be there? What what is the scripture's uh, attestation? What is it saying? And the the verse you quoted again. For some people, they say even if it's true, we we don't need to know about it. It's not really a practical doctrine. And if that was the case, now Paul would have snuck it in at um, some latter part of Ephesians and say, oh by the way, election's true. I'm out of here. Bye. And you you deal with that. But he starts with celebration of God's grace, and the doctrine of election is center stage there, and it's not as if Paul is apologizing for it. It's according to his good pleasure. And and people think, if election is true, how can that be good? That God chooses rather than us, and we only choose to love him because he first chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So on many, many levels, the verses you just quoted us so helpful to realize God wants us to know this. God does. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's that's the starting point. And it says in love he predestined yes. us for adoption to sonship. Yes. In love. So not how do you spite. argue that? Yeah, not not because there's something bad we need to get over in God, but you know, we can excuse him a little bit. No, it's it's the love of God. Again, if we if we start, I, I I think I used the illustration last time. But if you're buttoning a shirt or a blouse and you get the wrong button in the wrong hole at the top, it's going to be wrong all the way down. And and so it is. We need to start with a God-centered approach to the Scripture. That he he doesn't seem to want to appear in court when we say, "I'd like to analyze this and see if it feels good to me." He's the sovereign King. He can do with creation as he wills, and the fact that amongst this rebellious group called humanity, he elects to save anyone should be astounding, because he's never done that for angels who've rebelled. There's been no plan for any redemption of an angel. Any fallen angel is forever fallen and in defiance of God, and yet in humanity, there's going to be countless myriads of the redeemed, because God has sent his son to redeem us and chose to do so, not only in the purpose of saving, but he chose who he would save. Okay, John, let's put into the discussion now the idea that uh, every person has a will and they're free to use it. Yeah, that is so true, and oftentimes it's a a mischaracterization to say People on uh, the the Reformed um, side of things don't believe in free will. We do. Man is actually doing all that he wants to do within certain boundaries. And and, uh, even there you see the hand of God. You you see in the book of Genesis uh, a king was wanting to do some sin, and God stopped him. And God has the power to stop us from sinning. But many times he allows us to make our choices, and we make our choices based on our nature, 
and that's what scripture teaches. Uh, our heart is deceitful above all things. Uh, it's not wanting Christ. There is no one who seeks for God. Romans 3.11 literally says there is no God seeker. And so our nature as rebels is to want the benefits of, of God, like peace and freedom from guilt and maybe even a heaven. But what we don't want by nature, according to our nature, is the true God of the Bible. And so God has to work a miracle called regeneration or to be born again. And that has to come first before we enter the kingdom of God. And that's the way Jesus expressed it in John chapter 3. Unless a man is born again, he cannot, not he's unlikely to, it's actually impossible. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that's because his nature is defining of him in rebellion. And therefore, we're all doing what we want to do. And the reason why anyone would ever come to Christ is because God has changed the want to. So, um, John, when um, we talk about the the election and we talk about um, how God chooses, and you, you talk about in your book so beautifully how you can't change your nature and God can't change his because he doesn't. And we can't either. Yeah. I mean, you say, I can't decide that I'm going to go into the to the pool and go underwater for eight hours right? on my own. I'm going to take it one big deep breath and stay under for eight hours. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. Right. Right. And God yeah. can't. Can a leopard change its spots? Yeah. Not says, gonna, yeah. Not going to happen. So God, yeah. God, uh, it doesn't change either. Right. That's right. And uh, uh, to, to understand, we do have a will, but we need to recognize uh, it's a fallen will. And the will is always to do and make choices according to our nature. In fact, it's actually a form of insanity to be doing something you didn't want to do. And that's why we have courts and that's why there are jails. We can't say, you know, um, I really didn't want to rob a bank, but my hand and feet took me to a certain place and I did that. That's not going to fly in a court because we all know we do what we want to do. Here's the distinction that Jonathan Edwards, a theologian of the past, made, which I think is very much based on Scripture, and that is we always do what we most want to do at the moment of choice. And if you think about it, it's absolutely true. And that's why there are courts that say, on the night of the 14th of November, did you? And we say, yes, I did. And it's not an excuse to say, well, I really didn't want to, but somehow I, I, I did. No, you, you made a choice based on your nature, based on your heart condition, and you need to pay the consequence if that's exactly what you did. I, I remember someone saying, look, I, I, I paid $300 for a watch, and I never wanted to pay more than 75 And I then say, but again, the desire for the watch was greater than your desire to hold on to your $300. So though you would have preferred to pay less, you actually paid what you wanted to do in the end because you wanted to not have the experience of not having the watch. Mm -hmm. And so... In all of our decisions, we say, I bought a house and I paid a lot more than I wanted to. Absolutely, but you wanted the house more than you wanted the money or else you'd have walked away from the deal. 
So it is. We always choose according to our desire at the moment of choice. And the only reason we would ever choose Christ is that God gives us a desire for Christ that is beyond our desire to stay uh, apart from him. And that is the nature of what he does in causing us to want Christ. I remember going to a service, never wanted to go to a Christian service, didn't like what I was uh, watching and perceiving as people were praising the Lord. And uh, through the sermon, I didn't like what I was hearing. And then suddenly I became interested and suddenly I actually wanted what the preacher was talking about. And I actually wanted to do what he was telling me to do, which was repent and believe the gospel. And I look back now and understand that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That was not self-generated. I could have gone all my life in my condition of estrangement from God and enjoying that rebellion, except God. And that's what Ephesians 2 makes clear. One of the other scriptures, you, you mentioned Ephesians 1. Ephesians 2 is all about us being dead in trespasses and sins, uh, walking. It's like a, a zombie, a dead man walking. Um, that's our condition outside of Christ. And then where does Paul go with that? He does not say that you, with a little island of righteousness still in you, reached up to God and he accepted your call. No, it's all the activity of God from this point on. While mm. we were dead, it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he repeats that. Necros is the Greek word that means dead like a corpse. And just as a, a physical corpse has no re ability to respond, God, the Holy Spirit, has so summoned uh, the Word of God to show us that's our condition, spiritually speaking. We're born DOA, dead on arrival, into this world, and we need the regenerating power of God. And that's where the emphasis goes. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, has made us alive together with Christ. Who's, who's the us there? It's not everybody in the city of Ephesus. It's the Christians he's writing to. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, what was true of the church at Ephesus is true for the church in North America in our day. It's an act of God for us to come to him on his terms, believing the true uh, God and the true gospel. And that is a work of God. And that's why all the glory for salvation goes to him rather than he gets all the glory apart from me. That was the turning point. I made it happen. He only did. Uh, he did a whole lot, but salvation wouldn't have ever taken place unless I, as the ultimate deciding factor, chose God. And this is the opposite. Now, yeah. the reason you chose him is that he intervened in a miraculous way. John, I need to take a little break. Uh, John Sampson is my guest. 12 Whatabouts is the name of his book, Answering Common Objections Concerning God's Sovereignty and Election. Let us know if you've got a question. Text it over to us, 877-93-FAITH. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the program. John Sampson's my guest. He's written a very good book called 12 Whatabouts, Answering Common Objections Concerning God's Election in Sovereignty. I already got a 
text from a listener, uh, John, that says, just the thought that God chose me makes me want to serve him more and just say thank you. Absolutely. That's the right response. And after we've uh, got our face off the carpet in terms of just worshiping the Lord because we're in reverence of his awe, it's then, here I am, Lord, use me, send me, as Isaiah said. You know, absolutely right. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. John, let's talk about God's foreknowledge, those he foreknowledge he predestined. What, is, what does that foreknowledge mean? There's, uh, there's two basic ideas of that in the Christian realm, and uh, obviously we need to look at each one and see which is biblical. But the first is what is called the prescient view, and it, it, don't be put off by big words. Pre means before, and the word science there is referring to knowledge. And it simply means that God has prior knowledge of what people will do. And based on him, the, the, the old phrase is looking down the corridors of time, he looks at humanity and looks at the call of the gospel going to everyone. And then on the basis of people's response to his call of the gospel, they choosing him, he then chooses them. And that's the prescient view. And it's one that I believe for a couple of decades as a Christian till I began to study it out, as many of us do on many different topics. We we have our traditions, and that's a big one, and it's the most dominant view in our day, although historically it wasn't. But in our day, that is the case. People believe that God chooses us because we first choose him. But if you look at the key text on this, which I think most would agree is found in Romans 8, um, it says that those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. So what does that mean? Foreknowledge comes before predestination. And again, many with that first view say, there you go. Uh, the only basis on which he predestines people is that he knows ahead of time what we will do. But just hold on a second. There's an ambiguity in the text, something that's not actually stated, but is definitely implied, and that is the word all. And let's see that clearly, because if we impart the word some into the text, some whom he foreknew, he predestined, some he predestined, he called, some he called, he justified. There'd be absolutely no assurance when we would then say some whom he justified, he glorified. And the complete point of Romans 8 is to bring us to the place where we say, with Paul, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We've exhausted every enemy plan, every internal plan, and we can conclude nothing's going to separate us. We're under no condemnation, verse 1 of Romans 8, no separation uh, at the end of the chapter 2. But here's here's the, the, the point I want to make. God can only predestine people he knew. And notice the text does not talk about the actions of men. All that the text talks about is the action of God. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. It's God's activity. Those he predestined, he called. It's not the activity of man that's in view. It's God. And then when we look at the word foreknew, I believe um, 
to to understand it uh, properly, we have to take the little bit of time to say, okay, let me put my tradition on the table and see if it holds up to scrutiny. And when we look at the word for new, we look at the word new or knowledge in the Old Testament, and the Hebrew word there is yada, and it speaks of deep personal intimacy. When uh, Adam knew his wife, there was conception, there was a child involved. It wasn't he knew about her and knew where he lived, could fill out a form about her. There was an intimacy with her in the word knowledge. So it comes to the uh, nation of Israel. God says of Israel, you only have I known among the nations. Does that mean he did not understand that there was Egypt out there? No. He's talking about knowledge in a very personal, intimate way. And that's the thought that's carried out into the New Testament when Jesus says the opposite uh, is going to take place when he turns to those who professed faith in him but uh, weren't true disciples, and he says, depart from me, what? I never knew you. Never knew about their actions? No. Never knew you in a redemptive, intimate way. So tracing that word knowledge and putting the word pre or for knowledge uh, in front of that word knowledge, for knowledge means to set love upon beforehand. That's a basic good explanation of the word. And then when you understand that's the basis of the word and then bring your what we call um, the, the, the canonical scriptures to our minds, you know, all that God has revealed in his word, God, as A.W. Pink once said, did not elect any sinner because he foresaw that he would believe for the simple but sufficient reason that no sinner ever believes until God gives him faith, just as no man sees until God gives him sight. And so foreknowledge, the second view, which I believe now is the biblical view, is that to be foreknown of God is to be foreloved of God. God does not predestine people he doesn't know, but he sets his love on them in eternity past. And the verse you started the program, this, this hour of the program with, uh, really comes in here. In love, he predestined us. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He set his love upon us. And understand that rather than assuming the meaning. Um, you know, God knew Moses. God set his love on Moses. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Did he not know about uh, some other gentleman down the street? No, he's talking about intimate knowledge. Before the, I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. And this is the joy of the Christian, it, to, to understand that God has set his love on us in eternity past, and he started a work in us that he will complete. Yeah, John, I'm up against a hard break here. I know this is 100% joyful and, and uh, maybe 100% disturbing for some listeners. There's some questions coming in. Uh, we'll return with uh, Pastor John Sampson in just a minute. His book is called 12 Whatabouts. We're talking about the sovereignty of election. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. My guest is Pastor John Sampson. He is a pastor teacher of King's Church in Peoria, Arizona, and he also has written a book called 12 Whatabouts, Answering Common Objections Concerning God's Sovereignty and Election. People have come to him over the years and said, well, what about this and what about that? And he put it together in a book. It's easy and straightforward. It's concise. You will enjoy this book a great deal. Um, John, let me start with a concern from a listener said, uh, what um, are you saying that our prodigal son has not been chosen by God? No, not at all. Uh, um, that's really a, a, a wonderful um, explanation of Jesus as to what happens when we are estranged from him and he summons us to himself. Uh, the Bible, in fact, says that he came to himself, and what is not uh, said is explicitly in that passage is brought out explicitly in other passage passages. And so it's not a theological treatise that Jesus is bringing us there, but when he does discuss us coming to him, he says things like John chapter 6, verse 44, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. There's this drawing that is not really seen in terms of explicit mention in that, but in other passages, that's where we do see that. So we can look at that passage and say, okay, that's what the Lord does in grace. He uh, restores those who have rebelled against him. Absolutely. But it's other passages we go to that where, where he is explicit, that we turn to to explain what is uh, implicit in others. John, I love hearing things more than once because I'm I'm a little bit of a slow learner. So I'm going to ask you again to walk us through John 3.16, only because probably everyone listening knows that verse, and I would love for you to um, under, help us understand it. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's like a roadblock for many people. You know, how how can election be true and John three sixteen be true? I actually believe it's a great verse. Uh, I, the great thing is we don't have to, nor should we, take any verses out of our theology and say I, I don't want to deal with that. I prefer this verse over here to that verse over there. Uh, we to, to believe all that God has revealed. And John three sixteen is a great verse that tells us that in His love for the world. And the word world is is used in uh, at least 12 different uh, ways in the Gospel of John. Here's where our assumption is. We think the word world always means everybody on planet Earth, past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. That's an assumption. That is an assumption. It could be a true assumption, something that proves to be true. But let's, let's at least put it on the table and say... Uh, uh, is is the word world always used that way? No, uh, it talks of the whole world came out to see Jesus or um, uh, different ways that the word world is used. The word is singular in, in Greek. It's the word cosmos, but it's used in 12 different ways. Sometimes it means everybody on the planet, but usually not if you actually look at it. In fact, the Bible says, do not love the world. What does, it, what does that mean? That's That's kind of a world system. The system of this world. So again, we've got to use uh, biblical parameters and see that if we were talking about a, a planet out there like Mars, and let's say for the sake of this particular argument, there were Martians. <laughs> let's go in our imagination. And if we were to say, 
God's love for Martians was seen in the giving of his son for Martians. Now, again, we're not in reality here. This is just conjecture. Mm -hmm. That's what John 3 is, is teaching. In his love for humanity, he has sent his son into the world to save, not everybody, but to save those who believe. And what John 3.16 teaches is God so loved this world that he gave his one and only son. It was in the giving of his son that he showed his love so that. Here's the purpose, the so that. It's actually the hinna clause in Greek that says this is the purpose. The purpose was that all those who believe, we usually just use the King James at this point, whosoever, and we emphasize that, whosoever believes. But in the original language, it simply is a phrase that means all the believing ones, all those who believe. And whosoever or whoever is a good translation, nothing wrong with that at all, except it can lead us to think that it means that we have certain power to believe. Well, that's not actually said by the text. And that's, again, an assumption. All the text is saying is, in God's love for the world, he's given his son so that all or anyone who believes will in no way perish but have an everlasting life. They won't have this as the result. They will have that as a result. In other words, there's no way for anyone who believes to be lost. They will be saved. They will have everlasting life. What does this verse teach us about election? Nothing at all, because the, the Bible there doesn't say who can believe or who will believe. It simply says all those who do believe will have this result, not that result. So where do we go to find out who will believe and who can believe? Well, we're in John 3, earlier in the chapter. Jesus makes it clear. No one can come into the kingdom except they're first born again. And unless God intervenes, John 6, 44, no one can. That's speaking of ability. No one can come to him unless the Father draws. And so these, these are questions we've got to work through, but uh, we've got so many traditions, and John 3, 16, I know was, it was a roadblock in my mind because I thought there's no other way to look at this because I can quote the verse in my sleep. It's one of the first verses every Christian learns. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, son that whosoever believes in him. But if we stop and actually study and say, okay, let's, let's put our assumptions on the table, and if they're true, then scrutiny is not going to um, cause us to renounce them. Uh, if they're true, it's going to be seen to be true. If someone's got a real diamond, they don't mind someone doubting and saying, you know, I'm not sure that's real. Can we take it to the jeweler? The one who actually knows the thing is real doesn't mind that because it will stand up to scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And so I want to believe what the Bible says. I know your listeners do. And if we go to the text, let's see what the text actually says. And it says, God's love for the world is seen in the giving of his son for the purpose that the one who believes will in no way perish, but have everlasting life. So give us the A, B, and C of that verse. Well, A, B, and C in terms of God's love is shown in reality by the giving of his son. 
Um, what what it teaches is is very very clear. What it teaches is that anyone who believes will not have this condition, but will have that condition. They will mm-hmm. not perish. They will have everlasting life. What else does the Bible teach in that verse? I can't find anything else. That's what it teaches. The, the fact that anyone is saved is because of God's love for the world in giving his son, not for the purpose of everyone being saved, but those who believe. And the ones who believe will in no way perish, but have everlasting life. So that verse, John 3.16, doesn't tell us who can believe. Is that true, John? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. It just says the result of those who do believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the outcome of what uh, will happen to those who do believe. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, maybe we can talk about Second uh, Peter 3.9. Okay. Happy to do that. Um, if, if folk can open their Bibles again... This is one of those scriptures that if, if John 3, 16 is not a roadblock, then usually 2 Peter 3, 9 comes up as a roadblock for people because, again, we can quote it. And it usually we don't quote the whole of the verse. We quote a little bit of it that says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And there it is. That seemingly is a verse against divine election. Mm-hmm. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay, okay, I get that. I've quoted it before that way. It's probably the single most popular verse used to dismiss election, but if we actually go to the Bible and start in verse 1 of that chapter, we need to follow the pronouns. And he starts by, I'm going to read from the ESV at this point, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Beloved. Okay, the you and the beloved identify the audience. And so you might say, well, what's the point of this? Well, the point is context is everything in terms of understanding our Bibles. And then he goes on to say, there's going to be some scoffers saying, where's the promise of his coming? Um, But understand that God's purpose is continuing, Christ will come again. And he goes on, in fact, to say this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So he's back talking to the same group. He hasn't, in fact, he hasn't moved from talking to them. It's a second letter of writing to you, beloved. And so he's continuing on with the thought. But although the scoffers are out there saying what they're saying, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Time is different in God's, uh, from God's vantage point to ours. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. All right, we've got the same group involved. He's writing to the you, the beloved. He's just mentioned that they are the beloved. And he's saying that don't, don't, under, don't understand the Lord's coming as being postponed and will not happen. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. And here's where we, we, we go wrong, I think. We insert into the word any all the people everywhere from the high priest of uh, Midian to 
um, the, the guru who's in India, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all, all people everywhere should reach repentance. But again, I think we're violating there the, the context of the you he's referring to. If, if I've got a group of students in front of me and I say, um, all of you students, um, you need to be out of here by 5 p.m. because uh, there's going to be some carpet cleaners coming in and they need uh, to take all the chairs out and there shouldn't be anybody here. I'm not referring to everybody on planet Earth. Um, the you there are the students. And the you here are the beloved. And God is patient toward you, not wishing for any of you to perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. And here's where it really gets exciting. If you think about your and my own conversion, coming to Christ, and you think it was on a specific day, the reason why Christ did not come back the day before or half an hour before your conversion is he was not willing that any of the you should perish. And that's the reason for the seeming delay in the second coming of Christ is that God has the number, God knows the number, God knows when the last one's coming in of his elect throughout the world, and he's not willing. That's the reason for the the seeming delay in the second coming of Christ. God is not willing that any of those you perish but all of those you reach repentance. Great answer, John. Thank you so much. John Sampson's my guest, and he's written a book called 12 Whatabouts, Answering Common Objections Concerning God's Sovereignty and Election. And we've got some questions coming in. We'll take a short break, and we've got one more segment. We'll be right back. Back to the show, John Sampson is my guest. He's written a book called 12 Whatabouts, Answering Common Objections Concerning God's Sovereignty and Election. And we are lighting up the phone lines, John. You troublemaker, <laughs> you. Positive, you sure. troublemaker, so, you. so happy. <laughs> Here's a remark, a question. I consider the biggest risk in promoting the talk of the elect that it will discourage the non-Christian thinking that they may not be the elect, in how Satan puts doubts in people's minds that they can be saved. How does one avoid this problem? Very good question. Just to finish my final thought on that last question, um, second letter I've written to you, he says in 2 Peter 3, 1, if we recognize there's a second letter, there must be a first. What is that? That's 1 Peter. And there he identifies the audience. 1 Peter 1, 1, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect. Interesting, isn't it? Oh, very. Yeah. So then we come to this question of, does election make people think, well, how how do I know if people are elect? Here's the thing. We don't know who the elect are. God does. And God has revealed this right through the Bible. Israel was called his elect, his chosen people. Um, Christ is the elect. We are the elect, the elect, the people, but we don't know who they are. They're not running around the countryside with the letter E stamped on their foreheads, and we say, all right, uh, I'm obviously going to preach the gospel only to you, 
because you're the only one who's going to respond correctly, at least to show over time that your faith is, is real. We don't know who the elect are. That's why the Bible says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. But God ahead of time knows who those people are. Uh, an interesting verse is Acts 13:48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's a fascinating verse, and it's just a commentary of Luke on something that he witnessed uh, to say all who had the appointment made the appointment. And so there is going to be a time when we come to Christ. And rather than speculating uh, about our election, we need to simply ask these kind of questions. Do I, have I come to Christ? Have I come genuinely? Is there evidence of me being a true Christian? Can I sense in my heart, despite my sin, despite my ongoing need of forgiveness, is there a beating heart towards Christ? Do I run roughshod over the commands of Christ and it means nothing to me when I know what he says and I can just defy him? Or is there something that is perturbed by that? Is there something in me that wants the will of God for my life? All of these signs are signs of life, just as maybe someone's at the scene of an accident, there's been a, a car crash and the medics come and someone looks in a desperate state, they check for signs of life. And in our desperation, we can check for signs of life. And it's not a decision card that tells us we're in the kingdom or a signing a Bible. But what the scripture does is say, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And is there a beating heart? As, as badly as we sometimes live the Christian life, is there something in us that still wants to struggle with sin? Is there a Romans 7 experience going on where we are battling sin? Because Romans 7 is actually a huge advancement on being dead towards God and not wanting the will of God. Struggling with sin is something that happens in every Christian's life. And I believe right there, the Apostle Paul was describing his, uh, his experience after coming to Christ. And so rather than election being something that we should not talk about, God has revealed this in his word for our edification and to, to, to know that God has a people, and if he started the process in us, he being the one who started it rather than we. If I start something, I don't always, uh, you know, I've got a good record of starting some projects and finishing them, but I can't say that every project I've started since uh, aged eight I've fulfilled, I've come to completion. But when God starts the process, we recognize he started it not just at the moment of my conversion, but in eternity past, and he's going to bring every one of his saints through to full glorification, which is the promise that we mentioned uh, some moments ago in Romans 8. He foreknew a people. Uh, the foreknowledge was not based on the actions of people, but God foreknew people rather than their actions, and he predestined them. Then he called them. Then he justified them. And then he glorified them. And so sure is God that he will glorify them that the Apostle Paul was able to write in the past tense. As far as God's concerned, it's a done deal. Anyone who's in that chain of foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and some might say, well, these are big words, I understand. But do you know you're justified? Do you understand that you've come to faith in Christ genuinely? then you can go backwards and forwards in that chain and have the assurance that election is meant to, 
to, to give us. It's actually a blessing to know that my faith is not sustained by my willpower, but Jesus is the author, the one who began this, and the finisher of my faith. And so rather than it being something that can mess us all up, am I elect, am I elect, the Bible says, go through the process. Make your calling and election sure. Rather than run from this, be sure about this. Recognize that there is some activity on the inside of you that shows you have a beating heart, heart towards the Lord, and let that be the ground of your assurance that God started this, he'll finish it. And so rather than it being something we avoid, uh, when we look through John's gospel and when we re- read the epistles of John, when we read Paul, when we read Jesus, and when he rejoiced in the Father's electing, when he says, I, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the, 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 the influential, but you've revealed them to babes. And so it was good in your sight. Jesus sees this as good. Paul sees this as good. What's my problem? Those are the questions I began to ask myself. If I've got a problem and Jesus doesn't and Paul doesn't and John doesn't, then I've got a problem. I need to change. I need to allow Scripture to inform me and see election as the blessing. Oh, the love of God, rather than see it in a way that it messes us up and causes us to think, what's the point? No, the point is... Because God elected me, I've come to faith. And because of that, God's going to see me all the way through to glory. Mm -hmm. So, John, I know this is a big subject and it's not always easy to put your arms around. For many people, it's different stages of their faith journey. But we can assume God isn't walking the halls of heaven wondering if Arnold and Samson are going to ever come to faith in Christ, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, in fact, Jesus, again, I, I like theologians, but I love Jesus. And it's, it's Jesus where I find these things, where in John six thirty seven, he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a moment. And it doesn't mean that we share the gospel once with someone and that's it. Um, some people come to Christ on the last day of their life. And they've heard the gospel 84 times. But on the 85th, God says, you're coming home, my son. Wow. You're coming home, my daughter. And so you, you see in the thief on the cross, uh, there was no signs of election <laughs> at all in his life. Uh, he was a criminal. He was dying as a criminal. He was not someone who was, in, who, who was liked by anyone, it seemed, um, in society. They he, he was there rightly, the Bible says, uh, there on the cross next to Jesus. But he was given absolute assurance of his election when he cried out, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus made it clear, today you'll be with me in paradise. That was the activity of God. Why did he come? Why did he come at that moment? Well, although it's not spelled out in Luke where we read of that, it's spelled out in other places. And certainly in the words of Jesus, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And that thief on the cross was given to Christ in eternity past, and on the final day of the man's life, he did come. It's, I, wished I, I wished we had more time, John. This hour just yeah. flew by, and I've got a bunch more Hard questions. I believe it's an hour, yeah. Yeah, and I've got a bunch more questions, but I'm, what I'm going to probably do is 
just encourage listeners to uh, get a copy of your book, 12 Whatabouts, mm-hmm. Answering Common Objections Concerning God's Sovereignty in Election. And you can also um, head over to John's uh, website, and that is effectualgrace.com. Is that right, John? That, that's correct, yeah. Effectual, it's an unusual word, effectualgrace.com, all one word. Um, and you can, you have a blog there, and you do writing, and you've got all kinds of wonderful things here at your at your blog, effectualgrace.com. John, thanks for being a guest. I've just had a blast. My this pleasure. Been a great hour. Anytime, sir. Yeah, Thank trust you. me. I'll love, take. Love to come anytime. Amen. I'm, I'm going to take you up on that. All right, John Sampson's been my guest again. Uh, the book we've been chatting about uh, is called Twelve Whatabouts: Answering Common Objections Concerning God's Sovereignty in Election. And you can also go to his uh, website, effectualgrace.com. You can learn more about him. And uh, he's from originally from Wales. That's why he had that lovely accent. That wraps up our show for the day. Thanks to all the guys who showed up for Guide Talk and uh, to John Sampson uh, just for an outstanding hour. I learned a whole lot. If you missed any of it, I really do encourage you to go to MyFaithRadio.com, go to the show page, and hear this episode from the beginning. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting Faith Radio. You know, you're the very best. I'm just uh, crazy about you. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.